Let's turn in the scriptures to 1 Peter chapter 4. It has been a privilege for me over the last few months to be leading the way in our congregation's encounter of God in Peter's first letter. Just so thankful. Uh, Peter, of course, was Jesus' lead disciple. He is writing this letter about 30 years after Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, promising to return. It's about 30 years after those events that are central in the gospel that Peter writes this letter. He's writing it just a few years before he personally would die for following Jesus. And he's writing this letter to believers who are suffering. He's writing it from Rome to believers who have been transported unjustly to the regions of modern Turkey. And uh, he's encouraging them to bear up under the suffering. I have found week after week that my faith has been strengthened as I've studied, as I've prepared, as I've fed myself with these words of the Lord through Peter, but I pray that you have similarly been strengthened. Uh, As Greg mentioned earlier, and page 12 in the bulletin notes this, um, Ben Edwards will be with us next week, both 9.30 and 10.30 he'll be speaking to us. Uh, He's the dean at Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, and he's also a pastor there at Inner City Baptist in Allen Park, Michigan. Um, He's the author of that recent book, COVID Churches and Government Regulations. And Ben's going to be actually focusing his, his messages on that, that phrase in the next paragraph, actually, that we're not going to look at today, but it'll be uh, part of the, the focus of next week. First Peter 4.16, what does it mean to suffer as a Christian? And his focus is not going to be on the past as much as it will be on the future. He's not really going to be sorting through the COVID situation, but he's going to be saying, what can we learn from it? And particularly all of the regulations that came out, what can we learn from it as we're going to most certainly face tougher decisions in days ahead? It's going to be the focus of his talks. Today, we're studying verses 1 through 11 of 1 Peter 4. And we're tipped off that this is actually the end of a section because today's passage ends with a doxology. End of verse 11 is a doxology or a brief prayer that God would be glorified. The last phrase of verse 11 is, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It could be there for a few reasons, but I think the the reason it's there is because the central section of the letter has come to an end and everything after that is really Uh, concluding summary and concluding encouragement. Now, you got to think about that. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Who's Peter referring to? Well, if you look back, he's referring to Jesus the Messiah. The fact that Peter is certain that eternal praise and eternal world sovereignty would be given to Jesus, a man with whom he lived and ate and went on boats and traveled with, he walked from Galilee to Jerusalem with. The fact that Peter is saying eternal glory and eternal world sovereignty belongs to the man I knew is astounding. Jesus is the focus of our hope. And Peter teaches us in the passage that we're studying today what it is like to live for him. We're going to read verses 1 through 11 of chapter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, 
arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, in the body, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that's past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they'll give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. I think he's referring here to even those Christians who are now dead. They've suffered to that point. That even though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the, in the spirit the way that God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. These are two pointed paragraphs. And in them, Peter is emphasizing what he's been emphasizing since the middle of chapter 2. And that is that our future hope, our future confidence, really controls the way we live today. I'd state his main point like this. Every Christian should live with the expectation of suffering today and triumph tomorrow. Every Christian should live with the expectation of suffering today and triumph tomorrow. And this outlook, this outlook will help us never return to a life of sin, but always remain committed to a life of loving service. When you keep this outlook, that there is suffering today and there is triumph tomorrow, it helps you not to throw in the towel and say, I'm going to go back to seeking that immediate pleasure like I used to. Instead, I am going to remain committed to a life of loving service. Suffering today, triumph tomorrow. You keep this outlook and it'll help you never to return to a life of sin and always remain committed to a life of loving service. I'm going to explore both paragraphs in a bit more detail. The first paragraph, we seek to live out this passage that we're studying today. The first paragraph really stresses that we need to live with the expectation of suffering today. We need to live with the expectation of suffering today. These first six verses says, if Christ suffered, you should expect to suffer. And it's here that Peter's thinking shifts from the paragraph we studied last week to what we're studying this week. Christ suffered and triumphed, so you should expect there to be suffering before triumph. And Peter says there in the first verse, this is a 
powerful phrase. Look at it. Look at it clearly. Go back to it and back to it and say, what does this mean? What does this mean for my life? Peter says, Christian, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking. I think Peter probably envisions himself here as a drill sergeant with some new recruits. And he's saying, guys, expect pain. It's coming. Tell yourself right now that if your commander suffered, you're going to suffer in the war. Expect it. Know it. It's going to come. You're going to suffer. He's a drill sergeant and he's saying, guys, you're in the war. You're going into the war. You're going to suffer. Expect it. Don't be surprised by it, he's going to say in the passage that we'll look at a bit next week. Don't be surprised by it. Expect it. Arm yourself with this kind of thinking that pain today is normal. Suffering today is normal. Life today is not going to be easy. And based on what Peter then says at the end of verse 1 and through verse 6, I think we can actually put even more specific words to the, to the kind of thinking he's saying should be normal in your life. What kind of thinking should be normal in your life? Well, based on the rest of verse 1 and verse 2, I think we should say to ourselves, this is the, the mindset we need to arm ourselves with. We should say, what drives my life now is not my human passions, but God's will. Every day, we need to be thinking, what drives my life is not my human natural desires, but God's will. That's the kind of thinking that, that should, should characterize a Christian's life. What drives me is not my human passions, it is God's will. Now, from what Peter says here, we can say that Christians by definition are those who have decisively turned away from living however we want, and we have decisively committed ourselves to following God's revealed will in his word. It's what it means to be a Christian. I'm no longer living for my own selfish desires, my disobedient desires. I'm now living for God. There is a decisiveness. It's not to say that we're perfect. It's to say that we are changed. We're not the people we used to be. And isn't this so different from our culture? We live in a culture that shouts, my family, and we try to be pretty careful with what we allow into our house. We are bombarded thousands of times a year with the message, follow your heart. Be true to yourself. Define yourself. Define yourself by your desires. Our culture is shouting the message, not only define yourself by your desires, but define yourself by your sexual orientation and gender identity, your sense of gender. It is so different for Christians. Christians walk to the beat of a different drum. We don't say, I feel this way, therefore that's the real me. We say, God, you have willed for me to live this way and I have stopped living for myself 
my human passions, and I am a person who is committed to obeying your will. That's who Christians are by definition. We follow the drumbeat of God's will revealed in his word. So we say, what matters most about my life, what drives my life is God's will. It's not what I feel. What I feel doesn't dictate what comes out of my mouth. What God tells me should come out of my mouth is the guardrails on what comes out of my mouth. It's not just on what I say, but it's on how I behave, how I use my body, how I use my time, how I use my skill. What drives me is the will of God, not my natural human passions. Peter says your thinking should be armed with what drives my life now is not my human passions, but God's will. The second thing, the the second thought that controls a Christian's mindset is what really bothers people about me is that I used to live like they do, but I don't anymore. We need to arm ourselves that if you're living like a Christian, you're going to be maligned, and it's going to be because you live differently. You live to the beat, you walk to the beat of a different drum, right? It's here in verses 3 and 4 that Peter just more deeply explains the difference between people who live for their passions and people who live for God's will. He basically says, I'm putting it in the way people today would say it, Life is about getting high. Life's about getting wasted. Life's about getting laid. And Peter says that's how you all used to live. You used to think immediate pleasure. How can I get it fast? I'm going to do what feels good in the moment. And when Peter says there that the time that is past suffices for all these things, he is describing that the passion-driven life is ultimately unsatisfying. Doing selfishly what feels best in the moment, it might feel good for a moment, but no one says, that was so worth it. You know, I want to do that every day for the rest of my life. People live with regrets. People live with guilt and with shame. People try to hide what they do in that flood of debauchery. Peter says that passion-driven life is ultimately unsatisfying. And he describes Christians as people who found a better goal. And he says, you found a better goal, living for the God who made you. And he says, be certain that one of the things that this is going to do, it's going to lead people to make fun of you. It's going to lead people to malign you. It's going to lead people to avoid you like they avoid a plague. People are going to want to stay away from you because you're someone who's not like them and you essentially just by the way you live make them feel bad about what they're doing. Peter's saying expect to be maligned. Expect suffering. Arm yourself with this kind of thinking. People are going to be really bothered by the fact that I don't do what they do. I don't do the things I used to do. Third, he says, think this way in verses 5 and 6. Whether I'm living well right now Whether I'm living well, it won't be revealed until after I die and stand before the judge. Arm yourself with this kind of thinking. Whether I'm living well, it won't really be revealed until after I die and stand before the judge. Verses 5 and 6, this is where Peter reminds every Christian 
that judgment is coming. And the only people who are going to be ready for it are those who've heard the gospel and responded to the gospel. And if we judge life right now only by what we see, boy, it looks like those people are having a lot of fun. I'm getting maligned. All of us end up dying in the end, no matter if we're righteous or or unrighteous. Everyone dies. If you judge life by what you see, then it's going to look like following Jesus isn't worth it. But Peter says, in essence, don't evaluate your life based on what you can only see today. Judgment's coming, and you must factor that in. Judgment is coming. Let me just stop, okay? Peter says, arm yourself with this kind of thinking. Live with the expectation that you're going to suffer today. Expect suffering. And don't evaluate whether life's worth it until you stand before the judge on that final day. That's going to really reveal whether it was worth it or not. I just want to step back and say, do you see those words? Give an account Verse 5. Take a deep breath. Are you ready to give an account of your life to King Jesus? Peter describes Jesus as the judge of the living and the dead. When Jesus asks you to give an account, it's courtroom language, when he asks you to give an account, And he starts opening up the accusations against you that you're made to love God and love others, but you've really lived loving yourself more than God and loving yourself more than others. How are you going to give an account? How are you going to stand on Judgment Day? Will you have a defense? According to Peter in this book, Elsewhere in the New Testament, it's consistent. The only way that you're going to be able to give an account is if you immediately fall before Jesus and you say, you're right. I am everything you say. And my only hope is you. You died for me. You died in my place for all of my selfishness and my disobedience. I fled to you for refuge. If you're not enough refuge, Jesus, I got nothing else. You're my hope, my only hope. You ready to give an account? Have you fled to Jesus? Have you turned away from living selfishly? Have you submitted yourself to King Jesus? Have you said, King Jesus, save me, rule me, be my king, Lord, I follow you, I commit my life to you? Have you decisively turned to Jesus? If you have not, you are not ready to give an account. If you have, you're ready to give an account. You have nothing to fear because Jesus' death for you and his resurrection to justify you and reconcile you to God is plenty enough. Where is your hope today? Let me just be clear that on that day, there's not going to be any talk of like, but I did so many good things. That doesn't work in our courtrooms. It won't work in that courtroom. No amount of good can outweigh the offenses against God. 
that we have committed in our lives. There's no hope that, you know what, I've probably been a good enough person. The only hope on that day is in the judge himself who died in our place and rose again. Let me urge you to flee to him if you have not, and let me urge you if you have fled to him, persevere in faith. That's what Peter's writing about to Christians. Persevere in faith. Don't throw in the towel. Life involves suffering. And life, even as a Christian, involves failing. Get back up. Don't stay down. A just man falls and gets back up. Seven times he falls and gets back up, the proverb says. Get back up. Keep pursuing the Lord Jesus. Peter says, live with the expectation of suffering now. The second point comes from the second paragraph, verses 7 through 11. Live like the end is near. Live like the end is near. When Peter says, the end of all things is at hand, beginning of verse 7, he means the conclusion of human history. The end, the goal of human history is imminent. Peter had seen King Jesus whom he was convinced was the Messiah, the Christ, God's chosen king for the planet. He had seen him be crucified for sinners, rise again from the dead, ascend into heaven saying, I am going to return in like manner. Peter knew that King Jesus' return was just around the corner, that King Jesus could break through at any moment to rescue believers and to rid the world of rebels. Peter knew that the end was at hand. Now the fact that Peter wrote the end is at hand 2,000 years ago doesn't mean that he was wrong about the end being near. Peter's not describing that it must happen within this amount of seconds or within this amount of days or this amount of years. In fact, Peter had known from Jesus himself that King Jesus would return, most certainly. That it could be in his lifetime or a long time after his lifetime. And Peter knew that no Christian should dare try to take guesses at when that time would come. Because Jesus had said, I don't even know it right now. Don't try to guess it. It's going to be like I'm gone for a long time and I'm going to come back when, when people are not expecting it. Be ready. That was the message that Peter was grilled in by the Lord Jesus himself. Peter knew that Jesus' return was imminent. He knew that it was near. It was just around the corner. Now, what's remarkable is the way that Peter says those who know the end is near live. It's so contrary to the way people often think today. People often think, if the end is near... I need to live in a very unusual way. I need to quit my job. I need to empty my savings. I need to buy bread and milk and get prepared. No, it's not at all what Peter says. Peter says, just keep on doing what's normal and do it all the more. Do what's usual. Do it all the more. He urges Christians here to be faithful in loving service. And he describes it, I think, in three basic ways. He says, since the end is near, 
Pray consistently. That's verse 7. Be engaged in the normal, usual habit of Christian prayer. He basically says, be disciplined for the sake of prayer. So let me add a little bit to last week's encouragement. We have Don Whitney coming to us, Lord willing, in, in the beginning of October. His book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, has a chapter. Chapter 4 is on prayer, on the discipline that's required in a healthy, consistent prayer life. Let me encourage you to explore that. If you say this is an area where I am weak, I'm needing to grow. Peter says here, be disciplined for the sake of prayer. Be self-controlled and sober-minded, disciplined in your habits, disciplined in your thinking for prayer. Prayer is a, a form of communication within a relationship, right? And like any critical relationship, demands communication. Our relationship with God demands communication. In other words, just like with Hannah, I would say, communicating with her must be a priority. And it means that I'm going to have to carve out time to spend with her. And there are going to be things that on a weekly or a monthly basis that we talk through and we talk about It's going to require perseverance. You know what? We're going to go through dry weeks or months, and we're going to have to to regroup and and, and start better habits again. Prayer's just like that. We've got to be disciplined for the sake of prayer. We've got to prioritize communication with God. We've got to prioritize it to the point that we carve out time for it and that we bring to him regular burdens, and we persevere in this matter. One of the ways that I constantly encourage us, I I think too many Christians beat themselves up over a, a weak prayer life. When the disciples came to Jesus and they said, teach us to pray, he said, pray like this, and his instruction was simple. It was the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is a pattern prayer that Christians should pray daily. It's not that we should just recite it word by word by word and say, okay, I said it in 10 seconds, I'm done. It's that those, those, those six requests become like chapter headings. And we pray, Father, I want you to be exalted today. Would you be exalted in my work today? Would you be exalted in how I talk to others today? Would you be exalted in my self-control today? Father, I want you to be exalted in, in how I think rightly about you and how I bear up under the pressures of the day. And then you say, I want your kingdom to come, Lord. Jesus, I'm sick of what I see going on in the world. It grieves me, the war. It grieves me to hear about what's happened in Texas. It has grieved me, Lord. People are so horrible to one another. How long, Jesus, until your kingdom comes? How long until the Prince of Peace rules on this planet? Right? That's how we pray the Lord's Prayer. We say, God, I want your will to be done on earth as it's done in heaven. We pray the Lord's Prayer. It's a simple way. We we communicate to God these, these patterns, these requests that he's taught us to pray. And I guarantee you, the more you pray, your kingdom come, the more you will be in the frame of mind that Peter's in right here. The end is near, so keep praying. The second very normal, very usual habit that Peter encourages is just keep loving each other. 
This is verses 8 and 9 where Peter urges Christians, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. For Peter, along with all the other disciples, love is the quintessential virtue. It is the above all virtue. And Peter seems to have two facets of love in mind. At the end of verse 8, he basically says, keep your heart open to other believers who offend you in lots of minor ways. You're going to have to let love cover all kinds of ways they said it. They took that little jab at me. They forgot again. Love covers it. Lots of little minor ways that you're just going to have to cover and cover and cover and cover. That's love. Keep doing that earnestly because the end is near. The second way, he says in verse 9, is keep your door open to needy believers. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. He implies there that showing this kind of love is often difficult. It can often lead to grumbling. I keep pouring myself out for others and keep pouring myself out for others and I keep pouring myself out for others and I get so little in return. Peter says, keep pouring yourself out. Just, just quit it with the grumbling. The way Vicki has put it in her ministry, Greg's shared this with me, she said as a motto of their ministry, we are committed to one-way relationships. That's the way Christianity works. That's the way it works in a church. It's a great motto for her ministry. It is a great motto for every one of her workers. It is a great motto for every one of the members at Tri-County. We need to be committed to one-way relationships where we say, I am going to love you and I am going to keep loving you no matter if you frustrate me, no matter if you reciprocate. I'm going to follow my Lord and keep loving you earnestly no matter what I get back from you. Committed to one-way relationships. And what drives this kind of love is not what we get in return. It's the fact that King Jesus is coming and we're going to stand before him and give an account. Third facet of normal, usual Christian habit in light of the end, since the end is near, serve others. Serve others. It's in these last two verses that Peter urges Christians to just use their God-given skills to serve each other. And he groups all of the ways in which we could serve each other into two basic categories. He describes manual service, we might say service with our hands, and verbal service, serving one another with our words. And he gives very simple instructions about the general approach we should take if we're using kind of service service or whether we're using speaking service. Manual service versus verbal. He gives pretty basic instructions for each. In the first phrase of verse 10, he explains how Christians with speaking skills should use them. Peter says, if you're speaking, speak the very words of God. That's what oracles mean. Speak the oracles, the very words of God. In other words, say what God has said. That's powerful. This instruction applies to preaching, teaching, small group leading, counseling, talking with your kids on their bed at night, phone conversations between friends, 
If you're going to represent God, represent him precisely. This means that you're going to have to know what God has said, and you're going to have to know how to lovingly communicate it to others clearly, graciously, patiently. When Christians speak to each other, we need to speak what God has said. And I can't move on to the next phrase without explaining the next phrase without explaining just a little bit of this. This phrase, speak the very words of God, speak the oracles of God, has shaped my life. When I was about 20 years old, I had a pastor who preached this passage to me, and he said, this is the difference between preaching and preaching. And he said, you, as a young man, are going to have to going to wrestle with the question of when you get ready to speak to God's people, are you going to say, what should I tell them? Or are you going to say, what has God said for them to hear? Are you wanting them to leave saying, that guy had a pretty good message this morning? Or are you wanting them to leave saying, I know what God wants me to do? Will people leave this gathering like they left Paul's gathering saying we didn't hear simply the words of a man but we heard the very words of God that's driven me I hope I'm growing in it constantly I certainly don't think I'm perfect but this drives me this is our goal every week and I want to say this is paradigmatic this is the way this is the pattern way all of us as Christians should be communicating to each other regularly we should be representing God accurately, saying to one another in big groups or small groups, this is what God has said, and ministering it lovingly, patiently, and carefully. The second phrase of verse 10, Peter explains how Christians with manual skills should use them. And he says, serve in the strength that God gives. He basically says, depend on God for your health, your life, your stamina in that service. And Peter's words here, of course, apply to all kinds of manual service, and we've got all this going on at Tri-County. Hosting someone in your home demands strength. Making someone a meal demands strength. Helping someone on their property demands strength. Bringing someone a gift of money demands strength. Providing child care or, or supporting someone in, in care for an elderly parent, it requires strength. And especially if it's longer and ongoing, it demands strength and more strength and more strength. And Christians who engage in this, Peter says, you've got to depend on God, actively depend on God for, for the strength to serve so that when someone says, wow, what a servant. You just naturally say, God's given me the strength to do it week after week. And Peter ends right there. He says, so that when someone looks at your service, your instinct is to say, praise God, because he's given me strength for it. You've been depending on him, depending on him. He's given you strength. He's given you opportunity. He's kept you in the game of service. And so you praise him. And Peter says, so whether we serve or speak, we do it for others' good. We do to serve others, and we do it for God's glory. We as Christians, 
We as a church need both kinds of skills. We don't value one over the other. We need it all. And thankfully, at Tri-County, we have all of this going on, and we need to do it better. All of us need to have a humility to say, God, help me to keep serving and to serve more and to serve better, to serve more sustainably, because the end is near. I'm soon going to be standing before King Jesus giving an account. I just want to, I just want to love him with whatever breath energy you give me. Every Christian should live with the expectation of suffering today and triumph tomorrow. And this outlook should help us never return to a life of sin and always remain committed to a life of loving service. We need to live, believers, in such a way that the only explanation for why we're living like we're living is our hope. Jesus is going to bring everything he's promised to pass. I'm certain of it, and that affects my life today.